Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Daniel Paris, a host of the New Books Network, and I'm delighted to have as my guest today David Scheimer, author of uh, the just-published Rigged America, Russia, and 100 Years of Covert Electoral Interference, just published by Kanaf. David, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So this is obviously a very timely book that covers uh, a great deal of material about uh, Russian interference in 2016 and, and the current prospects looking forward to 2020. But I think the real value that you are bringing to the public understanding of this is providing a historical context. Can you, you know, provide how to, how to indicate how you came upon this historical context for uh, election interference, uh, you came upon the topic and, and, and found yourself working through this? Sure. So, so I'd say the, the starting point for me for this research project was I was in Germany in the summer of 2017 reporting for the New York Times. And, and while I was there, um, I'd been studying Russian and Soviet history for years. Um, I had watched Russia's attack in 2016 um, with great alarm. Um, and I'd been curious, is there more to this story? Was Putin an inventor or was he just someone who had sort of picked up the ball, so to speak, and kept running with it, um, but was sort of just the latest leader to engage in the type of behavior that we saw, which is one country seeking to covertly manipulate the elections of another. And and I ended up spending about five hours interviewing um, a, a former East German intelligence officer named Horst Kopp, who worked for the Stasi um, for over 30 years. And he detailed for me richly a covert operation to interfere in an electoral process in West Germany that he helped execute and that as a result of the vote swung the other way. And the leader who would have been removed, who was Willy Brandt at the time, ended up remaining in power. And as a result of this intervention, therefore, the entire trajectory of West German history, of Cold War history, had changed, all because of the hidden hand of a foreign intelligence service. And and for me, that was just so eye-opening that this was something that had been happening in, in decades ago before the internet existed um, and in two countries that were neither America nor nor the Soviet Union. So even though the Soviet Union did order that operation. So with that case and with the 2016 cases, I was pursuing my PhD at the University of Oxford. I just decided to, to look as far and as wide as I could. How many more cases could I find? Not really knowing whether it would be a book at all, but just seeking to, to see how far um, and deep this sort of story went. And what I found is that there was uh, it was almost limitless. I mean, it was like a snowball that kept just building and building and building. I went to six different countries um, going through archives, thousands of pages of KGB, Stasi, CIA archives. I interviewed more than 130 people, eight former CIA directors, a former KGB general, Bill Clinton, secretaries of state, national security advisors, foreign intelligence chiefs. And, 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 and as a result of that, while doing that, what I found is that there was a cohesive history that, that from 1919 to 2019, there has been a hundred year story of first Soviet intelligence, then Soviet and American intelligence, and now Russian intelligence interfering in elections all over the world in, in operations that are eerily reminiscent in many ways of what Putin did in 2016, and that in analyzing them as such makes 2016 and what's come since look entirely different. And that's what I do in the book. I look at this history, then I look at 2016, and then I chart out a path forward for the future. And to me, it's impossible to understand 2016 without that, without that history, because without history, there's no way to tell what's new and what isn't, what's unprecedented and what isn't. And therefore, everything seems novel when, in fact, very little about what happened in 2016 was. So let's 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 go back into that history a, a little bit. You, you start with what was actually an exercise, an early Cold War exercise. There, there were moments in 1918 and the 20s and 30s where there's a lot of back and forth, but it's very uh, even uh, fascinating to me as a historian, those periods, but the, the meat of the order starts in, in right after World War II with uh, an extended uh, analysis of uh, elections in Italy, in which case both sides in the, the you might call it the first uh, conflict of uh, the Cold War, are contesting the elections in Italy. Uh, you want to describe a little bit about how that, so it's, or both kind of figuring it out, and it's really been a, a constant process since 1948 to the, to the present, with some uh, preliminary uh, exercises in the 20s and 30s, and even starting in 1918 when the, when the Bolsheviks dispersed the uh, Constituent Assembly. 
by saying the guard is tired, you must go home. So, uh, but Italy is really where it seems to get started. You have a very detailed account, fascinating account of how both sides were um, a proxy for the Cold War uh, right there, right then in, in uh, the, the elections of 1948. Exactly. And I would, uh, and in brief, just to put 1948 in the context that it should be, what happened between starting in 1919 when Vladimir Lenin established something known as the Communist International which was an international organization of communist parties, the Soviet Union was providing money, propaganda, funding propaganda, and, and, and giving advice to communist parties all over the world, including in America, in order to bolster their popularity and influence in the pursuit of getting them elected and having them topple their democracies from within. As you said, those operations were very limited, um, extremely um, minor in their scope, but the idea was there. The turning point in terms of the, the reach of this stuff came after the Second World War when Joseph Stalin's forces moved through Eastern Europe and when he was able to engage in extraordinary electoral interference operations in countries like Hungary, Poland, and East Germany, where not only were millions of pieces of propaganda spread, uh, pamphlets, leaflets, posters, but voter rolls were manipulated and vote tallies were falsified. And across history, that's the two ways to interfere in an election, by influencing voters with propaganda and by, by altering actual ballots. Um, so those are two distinct forms of the same. One, one of the things that your book makes a point is that actually altering ballots is a uh, uh, classic way, but maybe harder, and that altering hearts and minds has proven to be uh, a more common and, and perceived to be productive, uh, maybe less risky approach than trying to actually alter the ballot box. Something that I think may, many people might not naturally assume. They might naturally assume that a fraudulent election goes is, is because of stuffing the ballot box. In fact, you suggest there's plenty of instances of both types in the book, but um, hearts and minds seems to be the predominant form over time. That's that right. That's the, that's the tradition. And I, I think that's absolutely right. And you see that in Italy. So that's a, that's a great, a great segue, which is what Italy was, was, was manipulating people. So what happens in Italy in 1948 is that the Soviet Union has just rigged elections across Eastern Europe. Harry Truman says, we are going to push back against this in Italy. He authorizes the CIA to engage in covert action for the first time formally with the express purpose of interfering in an election. The starting point of CIA covert action history was electoral interference. You then see a massive CIA operation in Italy, millions of dollars provided to America's preferred party, propaganda campaigns orchestrated to influence Italians around letter writing, getting letters into the into the hands of, of voters saying, you know, don't vote for for the communists, um, working with the Catholic Church um, to, to, to help them reach more voters and saying, turn out, support the Christian Democrats, and, and, and running what was called a scare campaign to scare voters into voting against the communists, including by, with disinformation and, and black propaganda. And, and as you said, that was toe-to-toe with the KGB. The KGB mostly was just funding the communists, but but what happens after that is the Christian Democrats win by a very large margin. And the CIA assumes that it was because of the CIA intervention that the Christian Democrats won. Something that I talked with a lot of CIA officers about and the CIA's chief internal historian about is that they can't actually prove that. They can't prove that they really, how much of a difference they made. To this day, they debate it. But the perception at the time was that they made all the difference. And after Italy, as a result of that, there's an explosion of covert electoral interference where the Italy 48 operation becomes a, quote, template, according to the CIA's historian, for what the agency then did around the world. So that was a real pivot point for American foreign policy and a real pivot point in the history of covert electoral interference for the, for the preceding four or so decades. You have a nice uh, anecdote with uh, Colby at the end of his career where he really believes he changed history. I think it's uh, uh, when he's returning to, to Italy, if I'm not mistaken. Correct? Exactly. Yeah. So... Uh, Cold War, uh, we, we are familiar with the traditional attributes of the Cold War after uh, 1945. This is a part of it. The, the main part of it, what's interesting is, you know, the, and this is one of the asymmetries that I want to bring up, is that you can really interfere in elections only where you have elections. And other than the first few years after 1945, there isn't much, <laughs> there, aren't very, there aren't very many elections in the East Bloc. So the action shifts to, to places in the West, broadly speaking, around the world, uh, where the Cold War is being fought. The one place it's not really being done is, is in Eastern Europe or obviously the Soviet Union itself. Uh, so one of those proxy areas and where you end up spending a lot of time uh, 
after 1948, uh, after the template has been created, I'm sorry, after Italy is in, in Latin America, where it's a 15-year exercise of both initially high enthusiasm and then low enthusiasm leading to a outcome that uh, wouldn't have been according to the template. Do you want to describe how Chile plays out? Sure. It, so Chile was what I see as sort of the peak of CIA electoral interference, because in Chile in 1964, in order to undermine a man named Salvador Allende, who was a socialist and a Marxist who was competing for the presidency in Chile, the CIA launched a, a, a really you know, remarkable in its scope operation to interfere in the Chilean election that involved getting funding more than half of the campaign of its preferred candidate, um, a Christian Democrat, that involved spending more than $3 million, which was more than the number of Chileans who actually voted in the election, um, which was under 3 million people, which involved spreading massive amounts of propaganda, running another scare campaign to frighten Chileans into opposing Allende. And yet again, as in as in um, as in Italy, the margin of victory for the Christian Democrats was substantial. It was surprisingly wide. So yet again, Washington assumed that it was the CIA that that saved the day, even though, again, it couldn't be proven. The best the historian at the CIA could tell me is, you know, provided a cushion. That's their analysis. But it's, it's a myth and a dangerous one to say that if you can't measure the effectiveness precisely of an operation to manipulate an election, it didn't have any effectiveness. That, that just is not true. The point is just how can you possibly measure how many people were swayed by a massive propaganda campaign amid a, a contentious campaign? It's not possible. But anyway, so after 1964, what happens in 70 is the new Nixon administration, which took power previously was the Johnson administration is rather distracted with Vietnam, is more reluctant to engage with the 1970 Chilean election. And they do authorize a covert operation to interfere in that election, but it's much more scaled back compared to the 64 case. And there's a presumption that A, Allende probably won't win because he's running again. And, and B, that even if he does, maybe it isn't actually such a big deal after all. But but what ends up happening in 70, which is unlike many other cases, is that the leftist candidate actually wins. Salvador Allende wins the election, which didn't happen in Italy and didn't happen in Chile in 1964. That then presents Richard Nixon with a choice, which is either continue to undermine, to interfere in Chilean politics, um, to, to get rid of Allende, or to uphold Chilean democracy and letting Allende take power because he won the democratic election. And Nixon chooses um, to continue subverting Chilean politics. He actually chooses to proceed from interfering in an election covertly to plotting a coup covertly. So he, he authorizes the CIA to proceed to that more aggressive form of covert action. And they try to overthrow Allende's prospective government in 70. The plan doesn't work. They continue undermining the Chilean government for three years. There's eventually a coup that does overthrow Allende's government and he commits suicide. And a few years after that, the, the, the operation was actually outed and that sparked reforms around, around CIA covert action. But but the interesting thing about Chile is there's there's a lesson here, which is that covert electoral interference is it succeeds when it's sustained. It, you know, rarely are operations just conducted against a country once, uh, one election, and then stopped. In Italy, we interfered in the Italian elections for more than two decades, spending more than half a billion dollars adjusted for inflation, interfering in their elections. In Chile, there was wavering. Um, who's to say who would have won or who wouldn't have had the CIA launched a, a more aggressive operation? But the point is. Allende won, and then and then Nixon did proceed from covert electoral interference to coup plotting, which is again a distinct form of covert action, and one that I think is a sign of weakness, as you said, that had become. I have in my notes here from that section, milk toast, a shift from a very aggressive position in 1964 to more of a milk toast position in 1970, uh, which led to uh, the adoption, uh, as it were, of a much more extreme uh, policy intervention or country intervention in 1973. So there, there are lessons to be learned there. As you say, if it's not consistent, it's probably going to uh, not work. The, if Italy is the template for the United States in this exercise of Cold War in, uh, engagement of uh, countries in their elections, then Germany in 1972 would seem to represent the template for the KGB, where they figure out a model that works pretty well for them. You mentioned that at the top of the show, but uh, let's circle back to that. Uh, because, again, Willie Brandt's perception in the West as a peacemaker is uh, pretty well known and, and he's pretty highly regarded. Uh, things worked out OK, as it were, with Willie Brandt. But the Russians were really, or the Soviets were really, really concerned 
that he was not going to be in position. And they pulled out all the stops in their effort to come up with an Italian, uh, an Italian outcome as well. So uh, what, you know, it was got into uh, uh, some more how we call the modern and personalized uh, interventions. Sure. So, so the 1972 operation, which which I'll be happy to walk through, was was unique in that it it was an Eastern operation and it was decisive, provably. So, what happened in 1972 was Willie Brandt was elected three years earlier in 1969. Um, he he was the first social democratic chancellor. He supplanted the conservative government and he had a foreign policy of Ostpolitik, which meant reconciliation with the Eastern Bloc, with the Soviet Union, and which meant, you know, thawing of relations between East and West. So for the next few years, he negotiates normalization agreements with the Soviet Union, with Poland. He's pursuing one with East Germany. These are achievements that are deeply valued in East Germany and in the Soviet Union, but are deeply resented inside West Germany by the conservative bloc. So by 1972, these agreements are about to be debated for ratification or are undergoing debate for ratification. And the conservatives decide to launch a vote of no confidence in Willy Brandt to say we are going to oust you as, as chancellor to undo the foreign policy that you are pursuing. And at that point, the Soviet Union orders the, the East German Stasi and instructs them, you need to preserve Willy Brandt's government, ensure that this vote fails, keep him in power. And, and what the East German Stasi then does is, is, is activate two of its assets in the West German government. And they had spent years, two men, Leo Wagner and Julius Steiner, targeting them, corrupting them, drawing them in, in order to turn them. So these were two men, Leo Wagner and Julius Steiner, both members of the West German parliament, both voters in this vote of no confidence, therefore, who were debtors, gamblers, womanizers, really every indication you could ask for that they're able to be corrupted. And they were first drawn in as people who would provide intelligence and information to the East German Stasi. But when 1972 comes around, they up the ass, they say, we will pay both of you 50,000 Deutschmarks, so long as you abstain from the vote. And by this point, they were so owned by the East Germans. They had blackmail on them. They were so corrupted. They were so reliant on these payments that they said, fine. So they both abstained from the vote anonymously, and the vote then failed by two votes. So had those two men cast their ballots as they should have because they were conservatives in favor of removing Willy Brandt, the entire trajectory of the Cold War would have changed. After that vote, there was a state investigation into the, the legitimacy of it because there were suspicions that there was corruption, but it came up short. They didn't discover the Stasi's intervention. And, and what this should tell us is a couple of things. One is that we, we need to be humble about what we know and don't know about covert operations to interfere in elections. It took decades for the true extent of this operation to come out, for that East German officer to let me interview him, for these archives to be opened. And, 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 and so when there's an investigation right after an operation, as with Robert Mueller, you don't necessarily, you might know some things, but there's, the only people who know the full story are the people who authorized and executed these operations. What this also tells us is that targeting people is, is, the, is the gold standard of covert electoral interference, finding, figuring out ways to know someone, to know what makes them tick so you can manipulate them more effectively. Is, is that, the, that's the gold standard. I, the, I, these are not your terms, my terms, but I think it's, it really comes out in the book. That's the gold standard in version 1.0. It becomes different in version 2.0. So version 1.0, it's the, the stuff of spy movies and uh, what you're describing in Germany, where it's literally based on an individual person. What becomes very interesting, and I think the readers will find particularly kind of dramatic, is how that changes in the age of digitalization, which we'll get to in a moment. But under kind of in the old black and white uh, uh, spy movies, it's it's all about the individual. Sure. So, well, I, I would I would have a slight adjustment to that, which is I would say in the pre-digital age, you typically had to do one of two things. You could either reach the masses randomly or you could target individuals specifically like two voters. It was not possible traditionally to both target the masses and do so in a precise way, which is something that is now achievable to do across, say, social media. But I'm sure we'll get to that. So let, let's let's then kind of move forward a little bit. Uh, I, I do think before we get to the kind of the main event, there's still some some uh, preliminaries that I think a lot of readers aren't going to be familiar with. I happen to have come across the IRI and NDI uh, some years ago, and they, it was a lesson for me as well. But I think there, there are, you know, the soft influence of elections abroad, maybe not covert, led by the CIA or intelligence agencies, but softer efforts 
uh, are still ongoing in some sense and have been uh, going on for for decades, even if they weren't the high stakes battles of of Italy or Chile. Could you, you know, introduce the IRI and NDI to to listeners who may not be familiar with them? Sure. And, and and one thing that I meant to say that I didn't before I get to that is just when you asked me what the template was of the Eastern operations, something I also walk through in the book is, and I won't go through it now, but in the Cold War, the real template was the KGB's many operations to manipulate U.S. elections by sowing discord, helping one candidate and hurting another. And and that was the template that has since been applied to our elections today. And, and I think that's important to recognize in, in terms of, and the tactics as well are, are very familiar, but in terms of IRI and NDI, what, what you see there is an, is an evolution in American foreign policy, which is in the post-Cold War period, the, the, the risk of using the CIA to interfere in elections increases because American foreign policy evolves from containing communism to just expanding democracy as an end in itself. And if your goal is to build up democracy, to interfere covertly in a democracy is a tough proposition because if it's uncovered, you're shown to be hypocritical, you undermine your own efforts, and without a consistent call to action and containment, there isn't really as much reason to do this. There's there's exceptions, as I do walk through, which we might talk about like in Serbia, but the rule here is, 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 is not to do that. Instead, you know, Bill Clinton, who I interviewed for this book, explained he, he much preferred using NDI to interfere in ele- to influence elections because what those organizations do is just seek to have stable, secure elections with parties that are well trained. They offer training and assistance to every quote unquote democratic party. They help people campaign, reach more voters. So sometimes this is biased because they exclude undemocratic parties, authoritarian minded parties. But the general idea here is it's overt, it's documented it's procedural, and it's just to help democracies function better, which is very distinct from covert electoral interference, which is hidden, which disguises foreign voices as domestic ones, which seeks to mislead and manipulate, and which seeks to kind of redirect a democracy rather than just allow a democracy to um, to hold an election that reflects the will of its people. So uh, j- just again, for the reason, IRI and NDI are publicly funded organizations that operate in the open and seek to support democratic methods in countries abroad. Is that a, a, a 10 second summary that sure. works? Yeah. Uh, but you know, the, the, I, I just think that a number of listeners wouldn't be aware that those organizations exist. They're not big, big budget items. In the, and I don't know whether they fall into the department of state or some other entity, but uh, they're, they're still out there. Um, and there was, you know, there still is even post cold war in Serbia in 2000, there, uh, an election, there's still, uh, these things are still being, uh, Contested and probably probably will, but as you say and you write, you know the, the CIA no longer overt uh, covert over. I have in my notes overt covert uh, electoral inference. Well, well, uh, I would just say I want to be clear that there isn't an equivalency between IRI and NDI and and the CIA. Those are those are very different organizations in terms of their engagement with elections and and in terms of the Serbian election. That was the exception that I found where the CIA did launch a mil- multi million dollar operation to work against the tyrant Slobodan Milosevic, which was really inspired by the murderous nature of his regime. Bill Clinton talked about with me on the record why he authorized that operation. But the rule here has become looking more toward overt action and not assuming the risk of covert electoral interference, which was actually considered and rejected in 2004 when George W. Bush considered using the CIA to manipulate the Iraqi election. So that's going on. It's the Cold War. It's the post-Cold War. It is uh, the continuation of politics by other means, uh, to, to misquote uh, Clausewitz, von Clausewitz, uh, it's probably going to continue. Uh, it can be seen as, as part of the, a broader Cold War, Cold War ideological conflict. Uh, and I think your, your work, the historical work, adds uh, you know, a, a, a flavor to it and uh, pages uh, uh, that are really interesting. They're not part of the standard Cold War history. Let's, let's turn to the, the main event, as it were, which it turns out the you know, the Soviets and now the Russians have not shied away from an even bigger fish, which is uh, directly interfering, if they can and however they can, um, in elections in the United States, which pre-2016 was not a very commonly discussed topic. And I think that your, your work uh, does a great uh, service in, in, again, setting the historical stage and making people understand that uh, not only as part of the Cold War, but even in, uh, that is third world conflicts around the world as part of the Cold War. But uh, even the United States, this has been an ongoing effort. You start with an almost quaint description of a, we'll call it not ham-handed, but but simple, uh, unsophisticated effort uh, to support Adlai Stevenson versus Richard Nixon 
1960 uh, using the Soviet ambassador at the time. Uh, and that the you know, Soviet Union had preferences for presidential candidates as they came and went uh, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and so forth. You want to, I mean, again, by compared to 2016, it's it, it is uh, reads quaintly, but it, it's worth setting the stage with those events. Sure, uh, yeah, and I would say, I mean, I spent about five hours with a with a sorry um, with a former KGB a former KGB general, and he was stationed in the United States for over a decade. And what he told me is, of course, I think I think a lot of the readers will know who that is. It's Oleg Kalugin. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah, Oleg Kalugin, who I was able to interview, and and what he said is, you know, of course we interfered in American elections throughout the Cold War. That was that was the job. So the the cases that I found, as you said, were were limited in their in their scope, limited in their in their reach, but the intentions were there in 1960 and 1968. The Soviet ambassadors approached the Democratic nominees, Adlai Stevenson and Hubert Humphrey, offering to support their campaigns. With with Stevenson, it was how can we how can we help you? What press would be helpful to you? With Humphrey, it was the offer was going to be to fund his campaign, but he didn't really let it get that far. And in both cases, Stevenson and Humphrey more or less said, you know, get the hell away from me! I want nothing to do with this. This is untoward and unacceptable. But the, the intention to, to conspire with an American presidential candidate was there. The Soviet Union tried. Even when those two candidates said no, um, there still were efforts to spread propaganda. In 1960, the KGB um, spread propaganda against Richard Nixon, who was the person who Nikita Khrushchev um, opposed in that election in, in, in 1970. So those are, so I guess that's the first bucket, which is one is attempting to collude. That's a well, well walked Soviet idea. The second is spreading propaganda, which is something that started in 60 in 1976. There was a more specific idea, which was to find and release the private information about a public figure, which is again, very similar to what's to come in 16. And what they tried to do is find evidence that Henry Scoop Jackson, a Democratic candidate in 1976, was was gay secretly in order to out that and therefore destroy his his campaign. They couldn't find the evidence. So what they did instead was they manufactured a document that alleged that he was gay, um, sent it to a bunch of different newspapers in the hopes that they would run it. They didn't. It, so the operation didn't work. But again, the idea, which was to find and release private documents, existed. And and finally, in, in, in 1976 and 1984, they, they also targeted Ronald Reagan again by spreading propaganda both at home and abroad um, in order to undermine his campaign. But but in, in in all the way through that, while they were seeking to help people like Adlai Stevenson and Humphrey and Hurt, people like um, Nixon and Reagan, they also were seeking to sow discord, but especially racial discord. And something that Kalugin said to me is, you know, your greatest vulnerability, America's greatest vulnerability is its racial diversity, its religious diversity. They would stage hate crimes. They would stage, you know, anti-Semitic incidents. They would they would write fake letters with racist content, anti-Semitic content. They even tried to plant a bomb in a, in a black, predominantly black neighborhood that would then be blamed on the Jewish Defense League. So so they wanted to turn Americans against Americans, according to Kalugin and according to the KGB archives that I reviewed, to show the world that America was just a, quote, hotbed of hate and that no one should want to be like America, that people should much rather be like the Soviet Union then or now Russia, which is what Putin's seeking to achieve. So, so many of these ideas that you now see today are reflected in the Soviet operations that 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 did occur. The differences without the internet, America couldn't really be manipulated at scale and was rather invulnerable to these sorts of methods. Whereas today, we're as exposed as any democracy. So, you know, again, providing some some context in the 1930s, uh, the United States and the West is having a depression. There's a lot of political unrest, certainly in Western Europe. And the Soviet Union is a locked down society going through a horrible uh, period. But uh, the propaganda state is able to depict and uh, contrast the uh, challenges of living in the West with the uh, so-called happiness of living in the Soviet Union at the time. Uh, that was not an accurate description of reality. But it, uh, again, this, this conflict has been going on and depicting the uh, unpleasantness of living in the U.S. is uh, something that uh, the Soviets and Russians have been doing for a long time. I still watch Soviet uh, Russian television, excuse me, and uh, uh, it's uh, it's quite striking to uh, to see how they are depicting the United States. Not just over the past year or two, when there have been a lot of 
issues worth depicting. But for, for many, many years, uh, it is uh, uh, internal communication designed to show that uh, you know, life in, in Russia is fine and elsewhere it's less attractive. Uh, but let, let's get to the, the main event. And what I think that is uh, interesting and, and worth pointing out is you've set up, I think is the really useful part of this book, all the elements, the structural elements for interference. Uh, what I think it's, it's worth noting is the marriage between those elements and sort of just personal dislike between, as Putin comes up, deals with Yeltsin, succeeding Yeltsin, the Americans appear to be, probably not having significance, not in a way that's measurable, as you said, appear to be helping Yeltsin in, in 1996. Uh, Putin doesn't seem to like that, and he, seem, he seems to have held a grudge against that ever since. And then when you throw in other personalities, uh, some of this is your commentary, some of others, you know, Condoleezza Rice or Hillary Clinton, uh, the man is... is you know, has a strong anti-American position and has a 20-year record to show for it. Yeah, I mean, I think the story of Putin is is really a story of someone who has abandoned ideology and is just seeking to disrupt and degrade democracy and to guard his own power. And And that's something that starts earlier than 96. That's something that starts when he was in the KGB, which does matter in this context, because he was a part of an agency that interfered in elections all over the world, that loathed America, and in particular, the CIA. And when he was stationed in Dresden, at the end of the Cold War, he saw a popular uprising topple what had been a very stable government or seemed to be. So he then comes to power, resentful of America, resentful of the end of the Cold War, but also seeing in places like um, Serbia in 2000, America was engaged in places like Ukraine in 2004. We were overtly involved in that election um, with, again, these democracy promotion tools, promoting democracy in Ukraine and Russia itself, um, military intervention in places like Iraq, and then in Libya, targeting, again, authoritarian leaders who ended up out of power and, and dead. Um, and Putin sees that those forms of intervention. And, 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 and I think the straw that sort of broke the camel's back was, was twofold. The first is in 2011 when there were protests in Russia following a, 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 a parliamentary election that was broadly deemed or widely deemed illegitimate. There are protests. Hillary Clinton speaks out in support of the protesters. And Putin sees this as an attempt to overthrow his government as it happened in places like um, like in Ukraine or like in Serbia, where there were mass protests that resulted in regime change. And he, 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 he is very sensitive to that. In 2014 in Ukraine, um, the government of, of Yanukovych is overthrown again in a popular uprising. And, and Putin either because he, he just says it in order to swell domestic discontent with America or because he really believes it, said, you know, why did you, America, overthrow the Ukrainian government. And, and from that vantage point, he saw, he, he's been hitting back from his perspective by degrading, disrupting, and delegitimizing the democratic model primarily or in large part through electoral operations. It's not about spreading communism as was what happened during the Cold War. It is just about delegitimizing democracies as an end in itself um, because he views himself is either under siege from inside or outside. And I'm not someone who believes in his worldview at all, but I do think it's important to see the world as he sees it because it helps to make sense of why he is interfering in elections all over the world. It's to divide democracies, to support authoritarian-minded, disruptive candidates who will be more likely to align with Russia and be less likely to be well-functioning democracies. And in America specifically, it's to make it so we function less at home, aren't able to lead abroad, and over time become a corrupted, transformed version of ourselves that actually reflects certain Russian attributes that that his government has and that ours historically is not. So, so Putin has a strategy here. He does have a vision, and it's very much grounded in his upbringing, his life, and and how he views America and the world. So, I, I, I recently interviewed an author of another book that focuses indeed on his background and why this is a perfect setup for him. That indeed he has these. Uh, inclinations. You you write uh, you know quote disrupt and weaken the Americans page one hundred thirty nine of your book and and I added afterwards you know the internet is just perfect for that uh, that was a a method that is perfectly managed uh, married to this uh, goal at, above and beyond the specific issues of how you interfere with an election but an ongoing campaign to uh, disrupt and and weaken and I think this is also something that listeners will understand has become part of almost the military. Um, strategy 
there is in 2013, you reference it, many others have as well, the General Gerasimov uh, doctrine about hybrid warfare, where this also fits in very uh, neatly. I've seen critiques of the assumption that, uh, that that doctrine is sort of real, but it seems to be real because it seems to be the playbook from which the Russians are, are uh, following. Do, do you want to you know, kind of provide a summary of sort of the, this hybrid, hybrid warfare notion, which is, is you know, very much uh, influenced by, by the internet, uh, internet world? Yeah, I mean, I don't think the thing about the hybrid warfare theory is it the thing I don't like about it is that it sort of, again, presents all of this as new electoral operations is new. The KGB was interfering, as we've talked about in elections all over the world, what you can call that hybrid warfare or not, they were doing it. What, what the Internet does is just provides a new reach, new opportunities to do so, um, not only around the world, as Russia is doing. And that's really important. This is a global story. And I, this is a bit of a tangent, but I interviewed the president of Montenegro, who, who Russian intelligence attempted to assassinate, the president of Colombia, whose elections are under siege. And, and those, those countries are under attack, too. So this is, a, this is a global story of electoral interference by Putin's Russia, not just an American one, which I think is a common misconception. But in terms of the internet from the American perspective, the internet allows Putin to do I, really two things. One is penetrate America at scale to reach the American electorate, which is something that had never been possible in the United States prior to the advent of the internet. You'd been able to try to collude with Stevenson or Humphrey to spread some propaganda here or there to se send a forgery to some newspapers, but you couldn't reach hundreds of millions of Americans systematically and you couldn't penetrate our voting systems as Russia did systematically without those digital tools. The, the second thing the internet allows is for Russia to turbocharge very traditional ideas. Rather than just spread one line of messaging, you can spread many lines of messaging, tailoring those lines to who would be most receptive to receiving them. Rather than just finding, forging and releasing a single document, you can create, as I said, you know, tens of thousands, I mean, you can steal tens of thousands of documents and then and then spread them all over the internet across social media through WikiLeaks and never have to go through newspapers. So so there are new opportunities for interference that are more precise and more targeted and more accessible and less expensive as a result of the internet, which just makes it so that all democracies are now vulnerable to this type of political subversion. But that idea of interference is, is, is not new, nor are the roots of what each of these weapons actually represents. So to me, that is why the Internet is such a game changer. And Putin has adeptly used the Internet to achieve his strategic aims of degrading, delegitimizing and discrediting the democratic model on a global basis, including in the United States. So before, before we get to the U.S. again, reference Brexit uh, is uh, uh, another area where uh, this method would presumably have been applied, and you referenced that, as well as to uh, the, the Baltic nations, uh, where uh, with you know, a lot of obvious uh, co past conflict, it, it has, uh, the internet intervention in their affairs has been an ongoing issue. We do get to the current, current arrangement, and uh, I think it's worth, many of our listeners will have heard of the Internet Research Agency. This is a mechanism, and it's, it's a kind of a purely modern mechanism because it's not directly a state institution. But the Internet Research Agency has been identified as a quasi-private, quasi-government uh, entity uh, based in St. Petersburg that is behind a lot of the uh, digital intervention. Uh, they apparently are very good at it, and um, they are molding minds. They're not necessarily doing specific votes, but they are, you know, as you pointed out, uh, uh, disrupt and weaken and setting people against each other. It's a, proven to be a pretty good formula for them. Do you want to describe the, the, the Internet Research Agency and how they operate? Sure. So what the what the Internet Research Agency is, is it's a it's a troll farm that isn't directly, you know, a Russian government agency, but it's hundreds of Russian operatives who sitting in a factory in St. Petersburg are infiltrating the information environments of democracies like Ukraine, the United Kingdom, the United States, assuming the identities of the citizens of those countries and then manipulating people in discourse, pretending to be um you know, their friends, their neighbors, their colleagues, when in fact they're Russians. And, and, and what's so interesting about the IRA to me is that everything that the IRA is doing is, is seems so novel, but in so many ways isn't. Because let's look at 2016 in particular, the IRA sought to scare voters um, with 
things around, you know, propaganda around vaccines, disinformation around pandemics. And, and as we talked about, the CIA ran scare campaigns in Italy and Chile. It's a well-walked idea that scaring voters is a way to manipulate voters. You know, the, the IRA is seeking to foment racial discord in the United States, targeting Afro- black Americans, um, which has been covered in the media, sort of this confusing new idea when it's anything. But as I mentioned, you know, Oleg Kalugin and his fellow travelers spent decades seeking to foment racial discord and discontent and um, racist incidents and hate crimes to stage them in the United States. So again, well-walked ground for the Russians. They're seeking to turn out some voters and suppress others, the IRA. And, and again, that is part of what it means to interfere in an election, to get the voters who you like or who support the person you like to turn out and to keep other people home. So working through cutouts, third parties, that's exactly what the IRA does by donning fake social media accounts. So what the IRA is able to do is do this so inexpensively on a relative basis, reach so many countries with tailored propaganda that is very difficult to identify through this new information environment, but it's really an application of old ideas to this new new world of social media. And in the United Kingdom, I, I interviewed the, the the head of GCHQ in 2016, which is Britain's NSA, and he said to me, you know, it was a failure on our part for failing to foresee how Russia would use social media to, to seek to manipulate the Brexit referendum. And just as, you know, people like John Brennan, Jim Clapper said to me that in 2016, they overlooked the work of the IRA in the United States as well, and that by Election Day 2016, they didn't have a very extensive understanding at all, according to more moreover people like Susan Rice, who I also interviewed, um, of the scope and scale of, of the IRA's operation. So very stealthy, very targeted, very precise, very wide-reaching, however, not necessarily just totally out of nowhere, a continuation of old ideas with new means. And, you know, the, the Obama administration doesn't come off very well in this. That is, they're sort of, you get the feeling it's like watching a slow motion train wreck that they're observing all of this. But some, some days there's not enough evidence or it comes in one channel and not another or the president has, is focused on something else. And it never seems to get the full attention or, uh, that it, it uh, really deserved and a robust uh, answer or solution. Could I, uh, I, 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 don't, I, I don't agree with that. Um, so, so I do think it got a lot of attention, but it got a lot of attention in, in sort of a different way than what we would have expected, which is that, again, two ways to interfere in an election, manipulating people. And like we tell you pointed out, that's the tradition, but also manipulating ballots, altering votes. And in the summer and fall of 2016, Russian military intelligence was inside many American voting systems and voter registration databases. Again, John Brennan, Jim Clapper, Jay Johnson recounted to me that Russia had the ability to manipulate those systems. And so the foremost focus, and so they were focused on it, was Russia's access to those systems. And in the summer and fall, the obsession of the administration was preventing Russia from escalating towards some sort of election day attack that would manipulate our voting system. So much so, as I reveal in the book, that on election day itself, there were secret crisis teams running in the White House and DHS bracing for that attack. So what Russia didn't pay attention to, I mean, what America did not pay as much attention to, as I think now in hindsight, many of Obama's aides wish they had, is that other kind of interference, that influencing of people with stolen emails and with social media. They were very focused on the voting systems, but that attack never came. But all the while, Russia reached hundreds of millions of Americans and suffered no consequences for doing so until after the election, precisely because President Obama decided not to wait to retaliate against Russia to avoid causing Putin to escalate toward affecting the vote. So so that was what Obama was paying attention to. So the Russia issue was an area of focus. It just perhaps the, the part of Russia's operation that was the focus wasn't the part that has been so widely covered in the media, which was the email hack and release and is also the social media manipulation. That was more um, maybe the secondary priority, if that, mm. in this period. So your book, your book, uh, ends with a couple really important uh, points that, you know, with all of the information that came out about 2016, there has been uh, relatively little uh, to counter it in terms of managing the risks going forward. Again, it's kind of subjective, uh, boxing and shadows and so forth. But as you point out, there's a lot of, you know, now there's a kind of a paper trail, internet trail, but there hasn't been much to counter it. And you, you end, end uh, really the book with a, a quote from Tony Judd that, you know, democracies uh, fall from within, not without. And so you end with this, you know, robust intellectual digital call to arms as to 
going forward how we as a country, a government, a people should to, should try to counter this. It's a you know it's a very powerful statement, uh, and I, I think it's worth highlighting here as well. Absolutely. I, I, I would say my point there is that the Tony Juck quote is, as you said, you know, democracies die as corrupted versions of themselves. And, and that is what Putin is seeking to do. He is seeking to corrupt democracies to the point that they no longer reflect what we've long known our own democracy to be or foreign democracies to be so that they reflect the authoritarian characteristics of uh, of Russia. And, and what that means is that Putin is seeking to tear down democracies. And, and my argument is, that in order to counter that effort, we should renew democracy, just like we sought to contain communism. We, while they sought to spread it, they're seeking to tear down democracy. So let's renew, let's let's rejuvenate our democratic system. And, and what that means is, is both within our country and abroad, we there can be an effort of renewal at home around elections specifically, we need to fortify our voting systems. That needs to be an effort that that is is absolute. If we have voting systems that can be altered by foreign actors, we will always be in a position of desperation and weakness and seeking to defend our elections. But we have to do more than that. We have to also defend against efforts to manipulate minds. The, the old tactics of sexteen were email hacking releases and social media. With email hacking dumps, you can have journalists be more mindful of what the source of those releases are rather than just covering the contents. You can have the government more quickly attribute those email dumps to help citizens understand what content they're being presented and who wants them to see it. And perhaps most of all, it falls on citizens to say, we care about this. This is a problem. This is a national affront, which it is. And we are not going to let foreign actors manipulate us and play us because what happened in France when emails were hacked and released in 2017 is the populace said just that we we've seen this happen in America. We've seen this show. We're not going to let these anonymous hackers um, who were largely suspected and were Russian intelligence to, to manipulate us. So we as citizens need to care about the defense of our democracy. Again, with social media, part of it falls on the companies and being transparent and cooperating with the government. Part of it falls on the Congress. They should be passing regulations around this. But again, it falls on citizens to be informed members of their democracies in being discerning in what they're seeing online. And I, that's why I think there needs to be improved digital education um, in even K-12 about what it means to be a well-informed citizen um, in a digital democracy. We need a renewal of local media so that way citizens have fact-based local reported journalism that they could look to for news rather than social media. And we also need to repair our own divisions along racial lines, religious lines, um, class lines, because the tradition here for Russia is to sow discord, to take advantage of pre-existing weaknesses and vulnerabilities. And the more polarized we are, therefore, the more vulnerable we are. So if we're able to pass legislation around common sense issues like like childcare, healthcare, or education, if we're able to address issues like systemic racism and, and police brutality and, and, and seek to ameliorate them, that not only creates a stronger America at home, but it also makes us more invulnerable to attacks from abroad. And, and in conjunction with that effort of renewal, we also need to lead abroad a coalition of democracies that says we, we care about our digital sovereignty. We're going to define what it means to be a sovereign state in a digital world. We're going to impose costs on countries like Russia who target our elections. And this is what we're going to do. We're going to prioritize these issues with leaders like Putin and saying, we care about this. We know this, you're doing this and you have to stop whether in Estonia or in America, it's the same idea, kind of applying the NATO mindset to a digital world. And we ourselves need to not engage in covert electoral interference. The CIA cannot do that if we are seeking to lead a global crusade against this kind of practice, which I believe we should because of how exposed we are, because it is not an alignment with our goals today, which is, again, to build up democracy so it is in our interest as well as in alignment with our values to cast aside a 20th century solution, which is CIA-led electoral interference, and instead adopt a 21st century strategy. I believe it should be the strategy of renewal in seeking to combat the Russian effort and really build back better and prove that the democratic model can not only function, but thrive in the 21st century digital world we now live in. So you finished the book a couple months ago. Uh, if you had written an epilogue for literally up, up to including the last few days for the 2020 election, have you, beyond what's going on in the United States, the divisions that you just referenced, do you have any updates for the listeners who are going to get the book for what, what you perceive the Russians are doing right now in regard to the 2020 election? 
Sure. I mean, I think we need to be clear eyed about how vulnerable we are. We have a president who's soliciting foreign interference rather than defending against it. We have a coronavirus, a, a pandemic that is sowing doubt about the sanctity of the vote. And we have an economic crisis, which is sowing um, much discord in itself. And we have had protests around systemic racism, which open opportunities to, to sow discord along racial um, lines. And what I'm looking for now, given all of those vulnerabilities, is how Russia will seek to manipulate voters between now and election day. Last time it was social media and emails. We'll see what it is this time. I'm seeing if Russia will actually proceed to try to cause chaos or alter the vote or sabotage voting systems on election day, which is what... Yeah, if in 2016 they explored that but did not execute it, in 2020, presumably they have the option of of actually executing that. Yeah, not only do they have the option, but they're working against a president now who, who invites rather than seeks to deter foreign interference. So for Putin, he doesn't have to worry about being punished for this. Um, you know, three of Trump's advisors in my book actually told me um, that that they worry Trump wants Russia to interfere in the election to help him. So that's the new status quo. So I'm looking out to see if on election day itself, there's some sort of cyber um, intervention. And, and finally, I'm looking to see if after the election, A, Donald Trump seeks to incite violence or unrest if he loses. As I reveal in the book, in 16, Obama's team had riot teams secretly preparing for that scenario. And across history, when undemocratic, in many ways, candidates are competing at the ballot box, there are always widespread fears of violence if they lose because they aren't willing to relinquish power. So we need to watch out for that. And then we need to watch out for whether there's some sort of contingency plan to continue undermining a prospective Biden administration by the Russians. Because again, what I reveal in my book is that in 2016, Russia had a plan to continue undermining Hillary Clinton had she won the election. That was what they thought was going to happen. And, 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 and something that's really important to remember is it is a myth that the threat of Russian interference is in any way unique or specific to Donald Trump. The KGB targeted our elections for generations in support of both parties, depending on what their interests were. They started targeting the 16 election in 2014 to hurt Hillary Clinton and so discord. They were going to keep undermining Hillary Clinton and she won. This is a story that stretches far beyond Donald Trump. And there's every reason to believe that it will persist regardless of whether he is still in power. So this is a long-term threat that requires a long-term, comprehensive, informed response, which is what I hope and believe my book will help to, to enable us to launch. Well, we'll consider it, uh, therefore, volume one. Uh, David Scheimer, uh, thank you so much for, for joining me. The book is Rigged, America, Russia, and 100 Years of Covert Electoral Interference, just out from NOP. NOP thank you so much, David, for, for being a guest on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.